Your vision has to be bigger than you. It has to be something you're willing to give your life for. So, if you think the same thoughts, the same thoughts always lead to the same choices. The same choices lead to the same behaviors. The same behaviors create the same experiences, and the same experiences produce the same feelings, and you're now caught in your old self. But new thoughts should lead to new choices, and new choices should lead to new behaviors. New behaviors should create new experiences, and new experiences should create new emotions, and that should inspire evolution. We say that your personality creates your personal reality, and your personality is made up of how you think, how you act, and how you feel. We could say that your personality is your state of being. So now, geniuses, if you keep thinking the same thoughts, keep demonstrating the same behaviors, keep living by the same feelings and emotions, your personal reality is going to stay exactly the same. But if you have new thoughts that lead to new choices, that demonstrate new actions, that create new experiences, that cause you to feel differently, you will begin to walk into a new future. How many people understand this? So most people try to create a new personal reality as the same personality, and it doesn't work. You literally have to become someone else. So, crossing the river of change, going from the old self to the new self, requires you stepping into the unknown. And if you are now in the unknown and you feel uncomfortable because you're leaving guilt behind, you leave unworthiness behind. You see, the biggest problem with most people is they want to create wealth, but they feel lack. They want a new life, but they feel unworthy. That's mind and body in opposition. And our research shows that you can teach people how to recondition their body to a new mind. And when that occurs, they begin to create very powerful things in their life. <clears throat> so now, let's talk about the neuroscience of culture because there is a neuroscience to it. You have a brain that looks just like the person sitting next to you. And if I was to screw off the top of your heads and take out the, your brain and your partner's brain, someone sitting next to you, and I went like this, and I set them out, you probably wouldn't be able to tell them apart because you share the same structure in your brain. And we call that universal traits, and we call it gross anatomy. Now, because you share the same brain as the person sitting next to you, you smile when you're happy, you frown when you're sad, you sleep at night, well, this is Mexico, you sleep kind of late at night and get up kind of late in the morning. Come on, I'm kidding. And, you know, you grab a stick the same way, we speak a language, and because we share the same gross anatomy of the brain, we have very universal traits that we have in common. How many people are with me? But now, how your brain is wired is your individuality, and that's the minute architecture or the minute structure of the brain. So then, <clears throat> 
your brain is wired different than the person next to you because you have different experiences. But if you share the same experiences because you're in a relationship, then you have similar brains that are kind of relating. And relationships are built on common experiences. If we share the same experiences, we share the same emotions. And if we share the same emotions, we can relate with each other. So then, think about it like this. You have a hand. And because you have a hand, you, you have the same hand as the person next to you. There's only a certain amount of things you can do with your hand. But now, what makes you unique is your fingerprint. That gives you your individuality. And that is really the minute anatomy of something related to a hand. Are you with me? So now, what is the division that unifies both the universal traits and our individual traits? And the answer is culture. Culture. And culture is defined by the environment in which you live, the environment in which you work, the environment of your family. An environment is made up of just a few things. Are you ready? People, objects, things, places, time, pets, and that's pretty much your environment. So the culture of Mexico City is defined by the environment. You eat certain foods, you like certain music, you relate with one another because of the environment in which you live in. And that culture is created from the environment, which is different than the culture of Mongolia. Because it's a different environment, and they have different traditions, they have different customs, because they've had to survive in a different environment. And so what unifies individual, individual traits and universal traits is called culture. Now think about this. Most cultures are defined by the customs they have, the traditions, the language, their survival skills, their habits, their attitudes, their beliefs, their history, their arts, their social structures that have unified them as an individual culture. Are you still with me? So the people you work with, the people you relate with, the people you interact with, you share a similar culture that bonds you both as an individual and as a species called human beings. And Mexicans are different than Australians because they live in a different environment and they have different traditions. You still with me? But we could say then that culture typically is defined by things that have worked in the past. So then, <clears throat> most cultures then have a choice. To create a new culture means then you have to define your culture as a vision of the future. But most people, their cultures are based on the past, present reality. What does that mean? We are in a changing world. And the world is changing faster than most people can keep up. And if you are going to stay defined by a memory of the past, you will not keep up with this culture because we are creating a global culture. So then, what defines the vision of the future to change a culture? And the answer is a very clear intention, a clear purpose, 
combined with an elevated emotion. And when you combine a clear intention, like a vision of the future, along with an elevated emotion of inspiration and joy, you will create an empowered individual. But here's the problem. To the materialist who's waiting for their wealth to show up to feel abundant, they're in their past. The person who's waiting for the success to feel empowered is in their past. The person who's waiting for their healing to feel wholeness, they're in their past. The person who's waiting for their riches to come to feel gratitude, they're in their past. They're materialists. In other words, you have to feel empowered in order for your success to show up. You have to feel abundant for your wealth to find you. You have to be in gratitude for you to create the life that you want. And by you teaching your body emotionally what that future could feel like ahead of the actual experience is changing your biology because most people wait for something outside of them to change how they feel inside of them. And when something outside of them changes how they feel inside of them, they pay attention to whoever or whatever caused that, and they create a memory. That's the old model of reality of cause and effect, waiting for something outside of you to take your pain away inside of you. The new model of reality is about causing an effect. That means then you have to feel gratitude every day for your new experience to occur. You can't wait for your success to feel empowered. You have to be empowered to create the success. And when you teach people how to do this and they move into a new state of being, they begin to create the life that they want. How many people are still with me? But to the materialist, they would say, well, no, 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 no. I'm going to wait for my money to come, and then I'm going to give thanks. And those people pretty much are living by the emotions of the past. And if you're living by the emotions of the past, you are viewing your future through the lens of the past, and your vision will fade. Because when you bring up an elevated emotion, you will see the vision clearly. And leaders in history that changed the world knew how to change a culture. Look at Martin Luther King. He talked about justice and then got enough people inspired that they felt empowered enough to do something about it. People came out of the resting state. And so then you share the same brain as Martin Luther King. And being defined by a vision of the future begins to change a culture. But most people have the same thoughts or the same intentions, and they live by the same familiar emotions, and for the most part, they're in their past. So the future, then, is created by a clear intention and an elevated emotion, now listen closely, that you have to cultivate in your inner environment of thoughts and feelings. But most people by the old self are living from past memories that are created from knowledge and experience from something that happened outside of them, some experience or trauma that defined them. 
And getting a person beyond the old self then is the great work. That's what we're here for. So, we've studied motivation, and I can tell you without a doubt that the highest form of motivation in any culture, in any group of people, is what's called purpose motivation, duty motivation, or mission motivation. You know what that is? To have a vision to change a culture that's bigger than you, to instill change in the world. Look at Elon Musk. How many people know who he is? Elon Musk, he created Tesla Motors. You know him? You know who he is? He created an electric car that can go from zero to 60 in less than five seconds. And before him, electric cars were like golf carts that you know, crawled along the road. And he said, I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I have a vision. And I'm going to get the best engineers in the world. And instead of creating a new product and selling it to a corporation, I'm going to get a group of people to share the same vision as me. I'm going to change the world by changing our reliance on oil. And I am going to make a difference in the world, and I am going to make a lot of money. Why not? And so people said, no, that's not possible. And he held on to that vision. And now Motor Trend magazine never rated a car a, close to 100. They rated the Tesla car 103. It's the best car on the road. And it relies on no gas at all. That's a vision of the future. High motivators are some people who have a vision bigger than them that are going to change the world and make a difference in a culture. That's the highest form of motivation. Right underneath purpose motivation or duty motivation is what's called personal conviction motivation. We call these people self-starters. This is entrepreneurial motivation. This is when you say, I'm going to do this because I said I was going to do it. Still a high form of motivation, but not the highest form. But what we know, that people who have purpose motivation naturally are personally convicted. Their, their personal conviction is in alignment with their purpose because they have a reason to get up every day. The next form of motivation is called ethics motivation or morality-based motivation. This is not the highest form of motivation, and this is based on polarity, good and bad, right and wrong. And people then, you know, they're trying to be good, but they're really bad. And they swing back and forth. They preach one thing and they do something else. And a lot of the models that are based on, well, <laughs> a lot of models are based on this. But we know from our research that people who have purpose motivation, have a vision that's bigger, them, bigger than them, that are personally convicted, have a great sense of morality, a great sense of ethics because it falls right in alignment. The next form of motivation is called ego-centered motivation. This is for acclaim and recognition and importance. But we know then that that's not a very high form of motivation and it never lasts. 
But people who have purpose motivation, have personal convictions, have a strong sense of ethics, naturally receive recognition. It's the end product. Now look at the lowest form of motivation. What does that say? Money motivation. People who are money motivated, you will spot them out in a crowd because they are selfish in their endeavors. They will take care of themselves first before they take care of others. It's the lowest form of motivation, but our research shows if you have a vision that's bigger than you, that's to change something where you contribute to the whole, you have strong personal conviction, a strong sense of ethics, already receiving recognition and don't even need it, the money always comes. It's the natural flow. And we call that in our work affluence. You know what the word affluence means? To flow to you. People who are affluent don't go and get anything. People who are affluent have it come to them. That's who they are. It's a reflection of their state of being. How many people are with me? So then, when you have a purpose or a vision or a mission or an intent that's bigger than you, it means it signifies something that's ongoing. You could have a purpose to go east, and there's never an end to east. You could have a purpose to be healthy. There's always more health to have. You could have a purpose to be wealthy. There's a never an end to wealth. You could have a purpose for knowledge, and there's never an end to knowledge. It signifies a direction. My purpose is to transform individuals in order to transform a culture. And I'm clear on that purpose, and it gets me up in the morning every single day. So then, how do you bring a vision from the world of possibility into the world of reality? From thought all the way down into matter, from what we say in quantum physics, from the wave of possibilities all the way down into the particle, from the immaterial, something that doesn't exist yet, into the material, from the world beyond the senses to the world of the senses. How do we do that? Well, it requires then setting up goals in alignment with your purpose. So let's just say you have a purpose to go in a certain direction your purpose signifies a direction, but your goals should always be in alignment with your purpose. And people who have goals in alignment with their purpose, their goals are a natural side effect of them being on purpose. What do I mean by that? Let's just say you live in the United States, and you were living in Los Angeles, and your purpose was to go east. So you may set up the first goal to go from Los Angeles to Arizona. That's a short-term goal. And if you arrived at Flagstaff, Arizona, you would know that you were on purpose. Yes? And then you said, okay, my next goal is to make it to Santa Fe. I just should say New Mexico. <laughs> and when if you arrive there, then you may go to Amarillo, Texas, and then, of course, Little Rock, Arkansas, all of these are in a direct alignment with going east and then finally to Atlanta, Georgia. And if you kept clear on your purpose and you kept clear on your vision, 
then those goals would be a natural effect of you being on purpose. How many people are with me? So when you set up the goals in alignment with your vision or your purpose, and you arrive at your goal, that's how you know you're still on purpose. So then what about getting healthy? You may say, okay, I want to lower my heart rate. That's one of my goals. I want to lose, you know, 10 kilos. I want to have more energy. I want to wear a new wardrobe and have a new relationship. This is the short-term goal at the beginning, and the long-term goal is at the end. And as long as you keep making the same choices, demonstrating the same behaviors, reproducing the same experiences, feeling the same way, you'll arrive at all of those goals. What about becoming abundant? You may say you want to be wealthy, and to me it doesn't matter. Wealth is a state of mind. You may want to start a new business. Once you start that new business, you may want to hire two new staff employees in six months. Then you may say you want to buy a company vehicle. And of course, then the next one is buy a new house. And then ultimately what? Make a million dollars? Why not? If that's your goal, to reflect your purpose, then you should arrive at it. Are you still with me? How about learning knowledge? Is there ever an end to knowledge? You may want to get an associate's degree. And then you may want to get a bachelor's degree. And then you may want to get a master's degree. You may want to get a doctorate degree. And then you may want to finally do research. But all of those things are alignment with your purpose, is it not? So what about this, exploring space? Could you then, man, we placed the monkey on the, in a spaceship. That was our first goal. Then we created satellites, and then we made it to the moon, and now we got technology to explore Mars, and then, of course, a distant planet, and ultimately enter the galaxy. So it looked like this. We send the monkey out into space, then we create a satellite, we go to the moon, we go to Mars, and as long as our goals are along the line of our vision, we'll always arrive at our destiny. Now, I want you to understand that there is a very specific formula for excellence. And the formula requires a person who has a clear purpose. But there are two other ingredients that put this together. The first thing is called competence. You know what competence is? Somebody who does something really well. The more competent they are, the better they are at doing something. The third thing is called accountability. Accountability means if you say you're going to do something, you do it. And if someone asks you to do something, you do it really well. And if you combine a person who's on purpose with a high level of competence and accountability, you have excellence in an individual. I run three companies, and all three companies, my teams, are very high on their purpose scale. They better align with my purpose. They have a very high level of competence, and they are very high on the accountability scale. And I don't even bother them. I never even manage them. 
because if they're not competent, accountable, and on purpose, they're going to stand out with the rest of the culture, and other people are going to be doing their job, and they are not going to keep up. And I say to my staff, I run an Olympic-level team. You have to be able to play at an Olympic level. If you can't be competent and accountable on purpose, there's nothing personal. We just have to cut you because we're moving at a fast pace. So now, if you look at what it takes now to maintain a healthy culture so that a group of people can work well together, it requires the same three things. A person who has a clear purpose, let's say your purpose was to change the world and my purpose was to change the world. And if you and I shared the same purpose, we would be heading in the same direction. Would you agree? And if we're headed in the same direction, that movement in the same direction begins to create what's called trust, that invisible thing called trust. And if you're competent and accountable in moving in that direction, and I'm competent and accountable in moving in the same direction, you have trust in a community. And one of the biggest problems in the United States, companies that want to become Fortune 100 companies, this is their problem. Nobody trusts anybody because they're too competitive, they're angry, they have no emotional intelligence, they don't know how to work together in teams, and because of that, they have no trust in the community, and the community and the culture can't sustain itself. Are you with me still? So now, why do we lose sight of our purpose? Why do we lose sight of our vision? Why do we make the wrong choices? Why do we say we're going to do something and all of a sudden we do something else? And the number one reason is called stress. And when you see a predator in your life, like a lion or a cougar, you turn on a primitive nervous system called the fight-or-flight nervous system. And the moment you turn on that fight-or-flight nervous system, you are going to mobilize enormous amounts of energy to prepare yourself for some threat in your external environment. Now, Mexico, this is pretty adaptive. If you're being chased by a lion, you better have the energy. So when that happens, you're moved out of balance. Your pupils dilate, your salivary juices shut off, not a time to eat an enchilada. Your respiratory rate changes, your heart rate changes, and blood is sent to your extremities, and you're either going to run, fight, or hide. That's your three options. Run away, fight back, or freeze and hide. That's what people do. But what if it's not a lion? What if it's your mother-in-law? <laughs> and you've had some tough experiences with your mother-in-law. Do you know that you'll react to your mother-in-law just like she was a lion? Now, what was once highly adaptive is now very maladaptive. Because as you see the coworker, as you respond to the news, as you make a judgment, as you get angry, you are turning on the same system as if you were being chased by a predator. And you are moving your brain and body out of balance. And the definition of stress is when your body moves out of balance. And all organisms in nature can tolerate short-term stress. The zebra gets chased by the lion, 
The zebra sees the lion, mobilizes all this energy, and now it escapes the lion. Fifteen minutes later, it goes back to grazing, and the event is over, and the body returns back to homeostasis. But human beings, we can turn on the stress response just by thought alone. Bills are adding up, rent is overdue, problems at work, and as you think about those problems, you turn on the stress response just by thought alone. And when you turn on the stress response and you can't turn it off, you are headed for some disease because no organism in nature can live in emergency mode for extended periods of time and expect to function healthily. So then reason this. The scientific facts are that 70% of the time people are living in stress. And when you live in stress, it's not a time to create. When you live in stress, it's not a time to be defined by a vision of the future. When you live in stress, it's not a time to go within or to learn. When you live in stress, all of your attention is on the outer world and not on the inner world because there's danger out there. And so people stop creating when they're living in stress, and now they are viewing their life through a lens of the past, and they lose sight of where they're going. So here's that definition where I talked about of creating different states of being. You react to an experience in your life, if you allow the chemicals to run for hours or days, all of a sudden you say, I'm in a mood. If it lasts for weeks or months, I have a bad temperament. If it lasts for years on end, it's part of my personality. And all you need is one experience to do this and you'll forget about your vision. <clears throat> so we live in two states of mind. Our animal nature is to live in survival and to live in stress. And the chemicals of stress are highly addictive. Fear, anger, hostility, violence, anxiety, insecurity, guilt, shame, sadness, unworthiness, depression, they are all created from the hormones of stress. When people live by this state, they use the problems and conditions in their life to reaffirm the addiction to that emotion. They need it so they can get the rush of adrenaline. And this is why it's so hard to change. Because it is a scientific fact that the long-term effects of the hormones of stress push the genetic buttons and create disease. And I just said you can turn on the stress response just by thought alone. That means your thoughts can make you sick. So if your thoughts could make you sick, is it possible that your thoughts could make you well? That's what our research is about. And if you know that the hormones of stress are highly addictive, and you can turn on the stress response just by thought alone, you can become addicted to your own thoughts. And this is why change is so hard, because people cling to those emotions because it makes them feel something. 
So living in survival is living in stress. It's being in what's called catabolism or tissue breakdown. There's disease, there's imbalance, there's degeneration, the emotions of fear and anger and sadness. People tend to be selfish when they live by the hormones of stress because when you're under stress, you've got to take care of yourself. So keep putting things bad on the news, keep creating fear, keep showing war, keep people feeling less than, and of course, they'll stay selfish and never create community. It's a great way to control people. When you're living in stress, you focus on three things, everything in your environment, your body, and time. Because if you're being chased by a lion, you're going to put your attention on your body, you're going to become aware of where you're going to run in your environment, and you're going to think about how much time you have. And if you live by the body, the environment, and time, you are not being defined by a vision. Because a vision has nothing to do with your body, the environment, and time. It has to do with a thought. So then you're in emergency mode, you'll get very object-focused, you'll focus on something over and over again. How many people have problems and you keep thinking about your problems over and over again, over and over again? That's how survival works in the brain. You keep focused on your problems. <clears throat> you feel separate from possibility, you define reality with your senses, you're living by cause and effect, you don't see any possibilities. Of course, you are really, your brain and heart are incoherent. We've measured this thousands of times. In other words, when you are impatient and you're frustrated and you're angry, your brain gets out of balance. And when your brain gets incoherent, you get incoherent. We measure people's hearts. We just came from a beautiful event in Cabo San Lucas in Los Cabos, 500 people training them how to train their brain and hearts. When you're impatient and frustrated, your heart gets incoherent. When you feel love and gratitude, your heart gets coherent. When you feel love and gratitude, your brain gets coherent. So then, <clears throat> people in emergency mode focus on knowns. They don't want the unknown. The unknown is dangerous. They want knowns and familiar. They lose their vision. The divine aspect of ourselves are the creative aspect of ourselves. That's when the body moves into homeostasis. We go from contraction to expansion. There's anabolism, there's body repairs itself, there's order, there's health, there's regeneration. The elevated emotions of love, and joy, <clears throat> of trust, of knowingness, of gratitude, they begin to produce 1,300 new chemicals that begin to heal the immune system. The hormones of stress produce 1,200 chemicals that last for 90 seconds to two minutes that alters how we think and feel. But isn't your definition of an addiction something you can't stop? So if I said, hey, I know you're really angry, but why don't you stop? If you can't stop your anger, then you're addicted. Valid or not, justified or not, if you can't stop your sadness, then you must be addicted to those chemicals. But those chemicals only last for 90 seconds to two minutes, which means, I tell my kids this all the time, well, they're older, but when they were younger, if you're angry for more than two minutes, you're faking it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> when you open your heart, you're selfless. When you're in that creative state, 
You're not defined by things. You're not defined by your body. You're not defined by time. We know this. We've studied it in the brain thousands of times. A creative person forgets that they even have a body. They forget about the things and people in their life. They forget about time. They're in the creative state. And my definition of creation is when you forget about yourself. You go from selfish to selfless. And that's when you're at your best. We've proved it thousands of times. <clears throat> of course, energy is created. There's always growth and repair. People tend to go from a narrow focus to possibility, to an open focus. They feel connected to their vision. They feel connected to people. They feel connected to something greater. They're already defining reality beyond their senses. <clears throat> They're living no longer as a victim, which means most people think unconsciously that their personal reality is creating their personality. If your personal reality is creating your personality, then you're a victim. But if your personality is creating your personal reality, you're a creator. <clears throat> so now they're causing an effect. They're no longer living by cause and effect. They see possibilities. Brain and heart are in a state of coherence and balance. And of course, they crave the unknown. They want the experience. They want the adventure. They live for it. So I'll go through just two more, three more slides. So then if your purpose is to go east, and all of a sudden you head to Phoenix, Arizona, or M Missoula, Montana, or Miami, Florida, or Boston, Massachusetts, you've lost sight of your vision, and which means you had some thought that led to some choice, that led to some behavior, that created some experience, that produced some feeling or emotion, and you gave up on your vision. You went back to the old self. So you may say, God, I want to I be healthy, but oh, you made the wrong choice. Three pieces of birthday cake. You miss a week of exercise. You stay up late and watch TV. You stop getting treated. And of course now, same thought leads to the same choice, which leads to the same behavior, which creates the same experience that produces the same feeling. And then you say, oh gosh. And then of course the feeling is usually unworthiness or guilt and you return back to the same self. <clears throat> I want to show you one slide, okay? I want to show you what it looks like when you learn something new. You have a hundred billion neurons in your brain. A hundred billion neurons. The number of connections you have in one neuron is between 10,000 and 40,000 connections. If you took 100 billion sheets of paper and you stacked them on top of each other, it would be 5,000 miles high. That's the distance from Los Angeles to London. If you took a scoop of gray matter the size of a grain of sand, you would have 100,000 neurons in it with over a billion connections. Now, I'll stop right after this slide. Learning is making new synaptic connections. Every time you learn something new, this is what's happening in your brain, geniuses. If you learned one bit of information today, your brain did this. Boom. That's learning. Physical evidence as a result of your interaction in the environment Every time you learn something in your brain, there's a physical change that takes place, and learning is making new connections. Are you with me? 
This is how fast it happens, too. That's learning. If you learn anything this week, you've made a footprint. If learning is making new synaptic connections, <clears throat> then if you keep firing the same thoughts over and over again, you're going to wire them in your brain. So then if learning is making new synaptic connections, then remembering is maintaining them. And all of a sudden, they develop a long-term relationship. And just like any relationship, the more you communicate, the more they connect. And neurons are exactly the same way. Now, as you begin to learn information, neurons tend to assemble themselves into networks, or what's called neural networks. And neural networks are just gangs of neurons that have fired and wired together to form a community of neurosynaptic connections that's related to a thought, a skill, a habit, a behavior, a concept. <clears throat> and neural networks are automatic programs. You have a neural network to brush your teeth, to put on makeup, to speak a language, to walk. All of a sudden, those neurons then form a hardware circuitry but if you keep repeating it, the hardware becomes a software program and it becomes automatic. So then, you want to see a thought? Watch. Boom, there's a thought. Right there. Watch again. Boom. That's a thought. You generate more electrical impulses in your brain in one day than all the cell phones on the planet put together. And it's not coming from the candy bar you just ate you are connected to a greater field. So then, in closing, and I'll take some questions, you are here this week to begin to understand knowledge and information that is essential for you to begin to apply. Knowledge is power, but knowledge about yourself is self-empowerment. And we are in a time in the world where we need leaders. And true leadership has to do with a vision of the future. As the old models begin to break down in government, in the economy, in religion, in education, in the environment, in medicine, something new has to be created. And we should never shrink from these models collapsing. It's a sign that something greater has to happen. Innovation, creation, invention is our future. And that are you willing to every day revisit that vision and get clear on your purpose? and begin to take steps towards that destiny and give up the emotions of the past that keep you enslaved to the same person. Step into that unknown and literally believe in possibility. And Buckminster Fuller said it the best. He said, if you want to change a culture, forget about trying to fix what's broken. Create something that's better, and everybody will leave that and go to something else. And so people around the world are waking up because we are in an age of information. 
And in an age of information, ignorance is a choice. Learn, study, change, apply, and meet the challenges in your life with a greater level of mind. Surely somebody has faced the same things that you have and have overcome them. And if learning is making those connections, every time you learn, you are preparing your brain for the future. But be willing to be original. Be willing to be defined by that vision or that dream. And if every day you keep it alive, sooner or later, that experience or that vision is going to find you. And that's when we go from being selfish to being selfless. And that's when we give people permission in our lives to follow us because we are no longer talking about it. We're living it. Thanks for listening. And this wraps up today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you felt moved by today's episode, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe for future episodes. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.